When you visit a website using a browser, which in turn uses the internet, amazing things are happening underneath the surface beyond what's displayed on your screen. Automagically, you can type in a URL, a web address, like for instance, google.com, and the browser will take you to the Google homepage. But what you may not realize is that typing in those words is not enough to actually connect you to anything all by itself. Something called the Domain Name System, or DNS, connects those words you typed to an IP address, which is a string of numbers that is the actual means of connecting to a bunch of information contained on a computer far away from your own, and that is what summons the proper site. So you type in the words, the DNS checks its guide to see what IP address those words connect to, and in the background, your browser pulls up the information stored on the faraway computer that IP address points at in the form of a website. An IP address is a unique address assigned to every single device that connects to the internet using the internet protocol. That's what IP stands for. This allows each device on the network to be distinct. So you have an IP address on the device that you're using to listen to this podcast, so long as that device can access the internet. You can see what your current IP address is, if you're curious, by visiting a site like whatismyipaddress.com. A virtual private network, or VPN, allows a device with one IP address to operate through another IP address. This is achieved using a variety of methods and protocols, but generally it involves zipping up all the data from one location, cryptographically, tunneling it to another location, unzipping that encrypted information, and then popping it into the larger internet from that second location, from that second IP address. In practice, this means you might use a work-assigned VPN while working from home, which allows you to safely access your office's intranet and security software. But you might also use it to bypass things like geo-restrictions on content, like movies that stream from popular websites, which can only be viewed in a given country due to copyright limitations. Or you might use it to get past government-mandated limitations on what content you can view, like being able to access Facebook from countries like China where most social networks are banned. Again, this is generally accomplished by zipping up your browser activity, encrypting it, and unzipping it elsewhere, so that you are actually, in practice, accessing the internet from another location. Perhaps a location where you can watch those movies or access that social network. You might be sitting at your home in China, but as far as the internet knows, you are using a computer located in Vermont. Using a VPN also adds a layer of security for people who are doing things that they wish to keep private, including illegal things, like pirating software or viewing underage pornography. If you use VPN software, you can scramble your signal so it looks like you're browsing from a completely different region. Not all VPNs are created equal, but inexpensive smartphone apps and computer software have made such options immensely user-friendly and accessible. There are even routers that have VPNs baked into their software when they ship. So everything you do 
while working from home or at the office where you connect through that router will be automatically anonymized without you having to activate anything extra when you use your computer or other device. This same concept is applied to make online shopping safer using SSL TLS, which is a type of VPN protocol that can take an entire network's traffic and tunnel it elsewhere safely and can allow end users then to be certain that their data is getting where it needs to go based on certificates that are used by websites with this protocol installed. If you've ever noticed that little green lock or checkmark icons in your browser up near the address that you've entered, that's what this means. It's a website that is using SSL TLS to ensure the data that you're entering is not being hijacked somewhere between you and the device that you're using to enter it and the website that is receiving that data. The tunnel between the two, between your info being zipped up and being received on the other end, is certified as being safe and unbreached by hackers. So this is a technology that can be used to make the online world safer and more secure, but it can also be used to help criminals hide from the law and to make shady dealings more secure from outside snooping. Anonymity of this kind tends to cut both ways. And that's what I want to talk about today. Privacy and how it can be wielded as a shield or a weapon, and how we should think about the concept in a world in which it is often used as both. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The week that I'm recording this, has been a somewhat frenzied one, news-wise. Honestly, I could probably say that for just about any week in 2017, but this week in particular was packed to the brim with a specific type of news, and a lot of that news was very horrifying and sad, but some of it was strangely satisfying, too, on a certain level. What happened was this. On August 12th, a rally called Unite the Right was set to take place in Charlottesville, Virginia. The folks who set up the event had acquired a permit to hold their rally, and they were protesting the impending removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee, who was the general who led the armies of the Confederacy during the American Civil War back in the mid-19th century, 1861 to 1865. This rally included attendance by neo-Nazis, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Confederates, and representatives from various militias who are essentially non-military, non-police civilians who are armed to the teeth, many of whom said that they were there at the event to keep the peace, which in practice seemed to involve standing around menacingly with assault rifles while wearing camouflage, and the majority of these militia groups subscribe to some form of anti-government philosophy, so that kind of informs their presence there, too, to a certain degree. The night before the rally, August 11th, a group of the protesters, numbering as many as 100, though some reports said that there were merely dozens in attendance, walked to the statue of Robert E. Lee, bearing tiki torches, the kind that you generally find at home improvement or big box stores to make your backyard seem a little more tropical and vacation-y, or in some cases to keep away mosquitoes. But the bearing of torches, in this case, 
was thought to be a reference to the KKK and white supremacist tradition of carrying torches to lynchings, to the lynchings of black people in particular. This group then surrounded the statue and shout-chanted things like, White Lives Matter, Blood and Soil, You Will Not Replace Us, and Jews Will Not Replace Us all of which are references to aspects of white supremacy, essentially being concerned that immigrants will take all of their jobs and their women and will nudge them out of society, killing off their culture at the same time. Blood and soil is an old Nazi slogan, and hating on the Jewish community was also a very popular pastime of Nazis, alongside many other white supremacist groups over the generations. The next day, August 12th, There was more chanting, and the protesters had replaced their tiki torches with Confederate flags and weapons, both guns and melee weapons, big sticks and shields and clubs. Counter-protesters had come out the night before, but the crowds on both sides were much larger the next morning. Scuffles broke out between the two groups, punches were thrown, people were shoved, some people were beaten with those melee weapons and with the Confederate flag sticks. At 11 a.m., the city of Charlottesville declared a state of emergency, and 40 minutes later, just before the rally was officially scheduled to begin, the police cleared the area, declaring the protest and counter-protest to be an unlawful assembly. Both groups then filtered out into the wider downtown Charlottesville area, and more scuffles took place, some of which resulted in injuries severe enough to require hospitalization. At 1.45 p.m., A white nationalist drove his car at high speed into a crowd of counter-protesters. The videos and images that have emerged of this are pretty brutal, and you can see and hear this attack from multiple angles if you have the stomach for it. 19 people were injured, and one 32-year-old woman who was there protesting against the neo-Nazis was killed. The cops caught the guy driving the car, a 20-year-old white supremacist who had been seen at the rally holding a shield with the Vanguard America logo on it. Vanguard America is a white supremacist organization. Separately, but still related, a police helicopter crashed a few hours after the car attack, killing two state troopers who were on board at the time. These troopers were on their way to help with security in the area, which was increasingly necessary as the day progressed, and their deaths brought the number of fatalities for the day in the area up to three. So, the horrible stuff there is pretty clear. It's fairly evident, I think. Not only is there racially motivated violence and rhetoric being slung, but there are injuries and fatalities. There's a surge in attention given to people who have what I would consider to be insanely backward and misinformed ideologies. And the whole crazy event gave the president the opportunity to essentially reassert his backing for white nationalism, something that probably hurt him a great deal politically, but which again gave some additional credence to these groups with their torches and Nazi slogans and violent rhetoric and actions. But the satisfying part, that came a little bit later. After the creepy Tiki Torch gathering and racist chant shouting the night before the rally, images of the men involved, and it was primarily men, white men by definition, and a few white women, but apparently 
The women were not allowed to hold torches. And I'm not even joking about that because apparently misogyny is also important to a lot of white supremacists alongside their supposed racial purity. But images of these men began to filter out onto the internet, and the internet began to do what the internet often does. It found them. And I don't mean it matched their torch-bearing photos with other photos from the rally. Online denizens began to collect photos from the event and used them to find the social media accounts and other online artifacts owned by these guys who attended and used them to essentially out the white supremacists as white supremacists to people in their real lives. What that means in practice is that someone who may have once held such ideologies privately and who drove to another city or another state to participate in a rally with others who believed similar things was now known as a white supremacist to, for instance, his classmates and his parents and his employer. At least one of these guys was publicly disowned by his parents. Several were fired from their jobs. A few of them dropped out of school after the attention they started getting from classmates became untenable, I guess. One of the better-known white supremacists in attendance, a guy named Chris Cantwell, who had a significant following online, as a sort of shock jock style call-in show host who espoused a strange combination of fascism and libertarianism. He initially showed up to the rally all full of piss and vinegar, carrying a small arsenal of firearms and showing off his manliness by talking about how ready he was to commit violence against all the counter-protesters. And he told this to his audience via a live stream. And then after he was hit with tear gas and he poured milk over his eyes on camera, he shouted again into a camera that he would kill the counter-protesters if he had to, and his bravado only increased from there. Now, the footage that he recorded of himself, alongside footage that was shot by a Vice reporter team that put together a very compelling short documentary while embedded with these white supremacists, it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it already, I will link to it in the show notes, that all added up to a pretty clear and negative picture of this guy and the cops agreed. The police put out felony warrants on Cantwell, and Cantwell responded by recording another message to his audience while in hiding, showing himself on the verge of tears, talking about how it was all just talk, that he'd turn himself in, and that he's afraid to go outside because the cops might shoot him. And then he published that video, and it went viral. And although it may have been meant as a kind of mea culpa with the police, it ended up being a death knell for his perceived toughness and his reputation within the white supremacist community. And things got even worse for Cantwell a few days later, as the internet did what they'd done to the other protesters and found out all they could about him and his online activities. The online dating site, OkCupid, was alerted that Cantwell had a profile on their service, and OkCupid immediately booted him for life posting about it on Twitter and naming him specifically as they did it. Tinder also apparently kicked him off their service, as did YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. I suspect I am not the only person who feels a certain sense of satisfaction when those I perceive to be bad get what seems to me to be their just desserts. The days following what started out as the Unite the Right rally, and which turned into the Charlottesville attack, were immensely emotional 
due to the horribleness of realizing just how numerous and motivated some of these ideologically backwards white supremacists actually are, how much they're willing to use violence to achieve their ends. But there was also a steady stream of those just desserts as a neo-Nazi would lose his job and sob about it to reporters, or a white supremacist would be disowned by his family, and then whine about it on his white power message boards. Within a few days, even Tiki, the brand that makes the torches the white supremacists wielded at the August 11th gathering at the Robert E. Lee statue, had come out against these white supremacists, not wanting their products to be associated with that type of group. All of these disassociations, all of these actions, made life more difficult for people who have what I consider to be immensely harmful and dangerous ideologies. And it felt really good to see it happen. Now, none of this made up for people being hurt and killed. And none of it makes up for the embarrassment I sometimes feel about my country for having people who have ideas like that. But it made me think that perhaps these types of consequences will dissuade at least some of them from doing more damage in the future. It will knock them off the platform our current administration has lent them and push them back into the shadows, away from legitimate public discourse. It will diminish them in many different ways. Which brings me to today's article, which comes from the San Francisco Chronicle, and which is entitled, Doxing to Shame Targets as Political Tactic Raises Touchy Questions. I've spoken about doxing in a few past episodes of this podcast, but in short, it's the practice of finding information about a person, sometimes publicly available information, sometimes not, and then revealing that information on the internet, making it widely available. Doxing is generally done with malicious intent, because providing, for instance, someone's real-world home address online could result in a real physical threat for that person. Suddenly, their real-world anonymity is gone, and anything they say or do online could result in real-world violence, or the threat of real-world violence. Some doxing cases get very serious and involve the release of information about where a journalist's children go to school, and where they're picked up each day, and when, and what that journalist's car looks like, and its license plate number. Some doxing cases are accidental. Maybe the information is released as a small portion of a document that was leaked, for instance. Or maybe a newscaster or a politician released the information as part of a speech or a news report without fully considering the consequences of doing so. Other cases are simpler and less immediately threatening, but can still have massive repercussions, as we've seen, in some cases, for the men who attended this rally, carrying those tiki torches and their Confederate flags. A Twitter account called Yes, You're Racist started compiling photos, videos, and other information, and used it to come up with the names, social media accounts, and cities of residents for the men in attendance. The awareness of this information, the sudden lack of perceived anonymity, was enough to do damage to many of these people who were targeted. A deluge of comments on a person's Facebook timeline, or a message sent to that person's employer, is not as physically threatening as posting a person's home address on the internet, but it can still do damage to a person's relationships and reputation. And that has been the case for many of these men already, as I mentioned before. Now that in mind, 
there are four main interesting, tricky dimensions to this story that I want to cover here. And the first is that, as I said, it can be viscerally satisfying to see those you consider to be bad people punished for their bad actions. The Yes, You're Racist Twitter account that has been systematically doxing white supremacists and their ilk who attended the rally, they got people fired for their jobs, got people knocked off social networks. And in some cases, the people being caught did, in fact, engage in criminal activity rather than just ideologically questionable activity. A cluster of white supremacists beat bloody a young black man in a parking garage during the Charlottesville event. And one by one, those who assaulted him have been identified, with folks on Twitter and other networks pinging the relevant local police officials with their evidence after they have enough to be certain of the assaulter's identity. In some cases, the cops have yet to make arrests based on this evidence, and in some cases they have. Regardless of the legal outcome, though, those doxing efforts have kind of an air of legitimacy about them, I think. Law enforcement generally seeks out that type of evidence to build a case against those engaging in illegal activities anyway. This is just an example of a preemptive community-orchestrated effort to get such evidence compiled and submitted to the proper authorities. And in cases where there isn't an actual crime being committed, where the people being doxxed are just expressing their views, which they have the right to do under the First Amendment, there are still good arguments to be made that not only is this type of doxing legal, as it tends to be when the information being collected and released is all public information to begin with, is not derived from hacking. But there's an argument to be made that it is also justified. These guys are saying all this stuff in public. So what's the big deal about spreading what they're saying to a larger audience? Why shouldn't their names be attached to their ideas and actions? There are other arguments, though, that vigilante justice of this kind can have serious consequences that should not be overlooked just because it's viscerally satisfying to overlook them in some cases. When Reddit falsely identified the Boston Marathon bomber after undertaking a similar crowdsourced evidence compiling effort back in 2013, there were long-term consequences for the person they mislabeled as the bomber. His name is still associated with terrorism, despite his not having any actual links to terrorism. Similarly, in this case, the Yes, You're Racist Twitter account, among many others, showed images of a YouTube personality wearing a swastika armband as part of a satirical statement video from six months previous, claiming that he was wearing it in earnest at the Charlottesville event, when in reality he was doing it as part of a stunt to make fun of Nazis six months previous. And during the Charlottesville rally, he was actually 1,200 miles away in Jamaica. So while it may seem justified through some lenses to take publicly available information and spread it to places where it seems it will do the most damage to those who you decide need punishing. If you spray enough bullets, there will be collateral damage. And there's little that can be done in the aftermath of such an act to correct it. An act that can leave innocent people with the stain of an incorrect label, potentially for the rest of their lives. There's also a valid argument to be made that removing the expectation of anonymity can sometimes stifle free speech. I don't personally think that this argument applies in this specific case, 
These were people saying and doing things in public, in a public space. So any expectation of privacy, I think, is kind of a stretch. But this argument is often applicable in the online space. And since the online and offline worlds tend to blend very seamlessly these days, it's worth mentioning this concept here, even if it doesn't directly apply to this specific event. Second, should we celebrate punishing people for having different opinions than us? This example of Charlottesville, I think, is better than most for this discussion because it's kind of an extreme example. White supremacists who celebrate violence versus not that. Again, viscerally, most people will say, yeah, screw those guys. Nazis get what they deserve. I can certainly understand that sentiment personally. But at the same time, history shows us that tactics and rules used against one group can just as easily be used against others. While today it's white supremacists at the business end of that tactical spear, if such tactics work and become common, they may later be used against ideologies and groups that you consider to be legit and good and moral. The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, uses this as an argument to defend many of their actions. If you take away the freedom of speech for one group, it becomes easier to take away the freedom of speech for other groups. What's unpopular today won't always be unpopular, and vice versa. And they have acted upon this philosophy since the 1920s when the group was founded. In 1978, the ACLU defended a group of neo-Nazis who wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois, a location that was chosen by the neo-Nazis because a lot of Holocaust survivors lived there. The ACLU's membership itself consisted of a large number of Jewish people, and yet, despite that massive douchebaggery on the part of the neo-Nazis, the ACLU decided to defend the group's right to march, their right to free speech. Many groups have been forced to reassess their stance on free speech based on what's been happening lately, both in the physical world and in the online world. The ACLU, for their part, have had to change their position on the specifics of that stance of theirs after what happened in Charlottesville. They initially represented the white supremacist groups that wanted to hold this rally, helping them make a free speech case against the state of Virginia to ensure that even unpopular ideas were not quashed. Again, predicated on the concept that if you allow the state to silence one group, it becomes easier to silence others after that. The melee and car-based terrorism in Charlottesville, though, led them to clarify that from now on, they will not be representing groups that carry guns, that carry weapons, while protesting. The idea here is that, in theory, if everything works perfectly, free speech should be absolutely free. No caveats. Because the system, the government and law enforcement, should be capable of keeping speech just speech. No violence should occur. No physical escalation. Because law enforcement should be able to keep the peace. That has not proven to be the case, though. And increasingly, one variable that has made that tricky has been the presence of gun-toting militia and gun-toting protesters, people with weapons, in short. And so that decision 
it kind of makes sense to me. To be clear, my bias here is with the ACLU. I believe in something close to free speech absolutism, and I contribute to their organization regularly. But I don't think you should be able to endanger people with your speech, and neither does the law. And I think drawing a clean line between speech and endangerment is becoming more difficult, in part because of things like doxing, which could be construed as a preamble for or encouragement of violence, and in part because of things like open carrying guns, which can stifle other people's free speech, serving as an implied threat, even if those carrying the guns don't directly say something like, shut up or I'll shoot you. A similar issue was raised in the wake of the Charlottesville rally by a company called Cloudflare. Now, Cloudflare is an internet services provider, perhaps best known for their ability to handle and diffuse large surges in traffic to websites, which is wonderful if you receive an unexpected burst of attention or if you are on the receiving end of a distributed denial of service or DDoS attack, which essentially knocks websites offline by inundating them with so much traffic, often from bots hiding in computers and other devices infested by malware, that the host of that website cannot handle it. They cannot keep it online. Cloudflare allows those websites to handle it and allows them to stay online. As a consequence of this and other security measures that Cloudflare provides, something like 10% of all internet traffic passes through Cloudflare. Many of the biggest internet companies in the world use them to keep their websites live, no matter what happens. And the CEO of Cloudflare, Matthew Prince, is a pretty hardcore supporter of free speech. A 2013 article on a tech website called Cloudflare, quote, terrorists little helper, unquote, for keeping a Chechen website online, despite that website's vocal support for terrorist organizations, including ISIS. Prince responded to this article with a blog post in which he said, quote, a website is speech. It is not a bomb. There is no imminent danger it creates, and no provider has an affirmative obligation to monitor and make determinations about the theoretically harmful nature of speech a site may contain, end quote. This is a position that he and the company have adhered to strictly since their founding in 2009. Internet services should not be morality police. They should be neutral platforms. This is the approach that is most likely to keep big players from wielding their influence like cudgels to prevent the spread of ideas they don't like. In other words, like the ACLU has often said, it may be neo-Nazis today, but it could be you and your beliefs tomorrow. It's in everyone's best interest to keep speech free. Now, knowing this, you can understand why what happened next is so remarkable. Cloudflare booted the Daily Stormer, a white supremacist website, probably the biggest and most popular white supremacist website, from their service. This was the first time that they've ever booted anyone from their service. And they were not alone in dismissing this website. The Daily Stormer was also dropped by their host, GoDaddy, after posting an amazingly disgusting screed about the woman who was killed by the car attack in Charlottesville. 
They then tried to relocate to Google, which also booted them, and then to a slew of other providers who also kicked them off. They eventually tried a few Russian and Chinese providers who also kicked them off their servers. They fled to the dark web for a while, unvisitable by anyone using conventional browsing software, before finding a home with a small web host who seemed to be hoping to achieve notoriety for providing services to them, rather than actually aligning with any of their beliefs philosophically. And that's where things stand as of the day I'm recording this. That provider may also come to feel the burn of public sentiment and decide to boot them at some point, but it's hard to say. But of all the groups who refused to do business with the Daily Stormer, I still find Cloudflare's actions the most remarkable and the most thought-provoking, too, because they did not kick them off for the same reason as everybody else. They didn't stop doing business with them because they thought they were being horrible and encouraging violence. They stuck to their free speech ideology up to a point. What finally did in the Daily Stormer was their claiming that Cloudflare had their back not for free speech purposes, but because the people running the company privately supported their cause. Being called a white supremacist sympathizer was what finally did it for Prince, who then pulled the plug on them. But the interviews he's done since and the blog post he wrote in the aftermath of doing so are very telling. He hated that he did what he did. He hated that he had the ability to do it in the first place. A quote from his blog post, quote, you, like me, may believe that the Daily Stormer's site is vile. You may believe it should be restricted. You may think the authors of the site should be prosecuted. Reasonable people can and do believe all those things. But having the mechanism of content control be vigilante hackers launching DDoS attacks subverts any rational concept of justice, end quote. And a bit later in that post, quote, in a not-so-distant future, if we're not there already, it may be that if you're going to put content on the internet, you'll need to use a company with a giant network like Cloudflare, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, or Alibaba. Without a clear framework as a guide for content regulation, a small number of companies will largely determine what can and cannot be online, end quote. And then finally, quote, due process requires that decisions be public and not arbitrary. It's why we've always said that our policy is to follow the guidance of the law in the jurisdictions in which we operate. Law enforcement, legislators, and courts have the political legitimacy and predictability to make decisions on what content should be restricted. Companies should not, end quote. I share his concerns about this topic. I also share his revulsion about some of the people who are protected alongside the people I consider to be good and moral. But he's right about the difficulty in assessing what justice looks like in this kind of system, and in that we need to figure out some kind of framework, something more modern than what we have today, that allows most speech through, but also designates what is an actual transmission of ideas, popular or not, repugnant or not, and what is a weapon being fired via language? Who is using their speech in ways that we as a society should consider legitimate? Again, whether or not we agree with what they're saying, and who's quote-unquote jokingly saying we should kill certain people, and who's quote-unquote ironically 
saying we need to purify the country based on race and ethnicity, leading to violence that otherwise may not have taken place. And we ideally need to do so in such a way that it's not Facebook or Google or Cloudflare making those decisions, because corporations have different metrics for success and different incentives than non-capitalistic entities do. In short, entities that decide clickbait and autoplay videos are legitimate business practices should not be deciding what to do about hate speech. Entities that have a legal mandate to generate money before all other considerations should not be deciding what justice looks like. There's a term that's relevant, I think, to this facet of the free speech discussion. That term is the paradox of tolerance. The paradox of tolerance says that any society with absolute tolerance for everything, without limits, will eventually be overthrown or taken over by the intolerant. Meaning if your society tolerates, let's say, Nazis, eventually those Nazis can use your system against you to take over society and make everything far less tolerant. So absolute tolerance can lead to absolute intolerance. This is an idea that I did not immediately buy into, as I, and I think many of us, prefer absolutes when it comes to these types of philosophical rules. I like to be able to say that I 100% support something in all cases, because otherwise I feel like I'm being hypocritical. But I also think this paradox applies more widely than we might prefer to assume. And though it may not be a pleasant process, figuring out where to draw the line, which types of things shouldn't be tolerated, and who's qualified to make that decision for a particular society, I also think that it is an angle to this discussion worth considering for tolerance and for things like free speech. Third, it's worth noting that doxing has long been a tool used by groups that organize in places like the Daily Stormer, meaning it's been popular as a weapon for white supremacist groups, among other societally fringe elements of that kind. It's been popular among the groups that are now becoming the targets of such tools. Leaving aside the ideologies involved for a moment, at what point does using your enemies' questionable tactics against them bring you closer to them? If you use violence to stop violence, does that make you less moral? Does it make your actions and ideas less justifiable? If you're criticizing someone's ideology for being violent, and you use violence to try to stop it or counter it, at what point do you lose your credibility as a legitimate opposition to that group? And applying that concept here, if you start doxing the doxers, is that a legitimate tit for tat? Or does that take away some of your moral high ground? Now, arguably, part of what makes these groups so reprehensible is that they tend to dox and otherwise attack people who believe differently from them. Is using that same tactic and others against them justified? Is it karmic justice? Or is it a failure to counter them via other, perhaps better, more moral means? And is it something that should be avoided at all costs, lest we become more like them while trying to stop them. And then one final point, privacy is a broad topic. It touches almost every discussion that we might have about technology and government and medicine and everything else, pretty much, today. What's interesting to me is that many people who are the biggest proponents of openness and transparency 
are also the most private. Mark Zuckerberg is a great example of this. He has built one of the largest fortunes in history by getting people to share everything, always, constantly, on Facebook. But he himself has become more private as the years have gone by. You could argue that becoming a billionaire tends to do that to a person, but if you look around, a lot of the people who are clamming up in this way, just as the rest of us are sharing more than ever, are the wealthy. They're the connected. These are the people who don't need to share anything about themselves to gain social credibility or to benefit from the tools that the rest of us gain in exchange for being less private. Now, I personally benefit greatly from the services provided by Google and Facebook and Amazon and all of these other services. And I gain these services in exchange for the information they soak up from me going about my business, from my online activities of all kinds. But in a world in which privacy offers a degree of protection, doxing is just the sharing of information that your target wants to keep private. Are we all opening ourselves up to be victims? Are we becoming more susceptible to attack by participating in these online communities the way that we do? Or on the other hand, are we making ourselves less tempting as targets? At some point, will we all be completely open books with nothing to hide? I think it really depends on who holds that data, this information. If some parts of society, for example, the wealthy and powerful, are able to keep their information private, while the rest of us fail to do so, they might become more tempting targets. On the other hand, if those same people are the ones that are hoarding the information about the rest of us, then they have a very powerful trump card to use against everyone else on the planet. I mentioned in a past episode that Uber had used information from their service to threaten a tech journalist who was saying mean things about them, basically. They had this data about her locations, where she was going, based on her Uber-using habits, which they collected from her phone's GPS data via their app. Most companies are not as frequently and visibly nefarious as Uber has been over the years. There's a company culture thing going on there that has proven to be very troublesome for them of late. But nefarious or not, think about how much information Google has about you, or Facebook or Apple. Now consider that when we make laws and impose governmental changes, many of the arguments that help us judge which changes to make and which not to make are based on what could happen in the future. A future Congress, a future president. Giving today's president new powers might make sense now for this president, but what if someone completely different comes to power? What if someone with a different ideology, a different temperament, takes the reins? We may come to regret granting that unknown person increased power just for some kind of short-term benefit today. The same applies, I think, in the case of these corporations. I think that maybe Mark Zuckerberg knows something that many of us might feel but not be able to express, that data today is a valuable thing to share, and that it very well might continue to be that way in perpetuity. But there might be a time where that data could be used against us, either by a future leader of Facebook or some other corporation, or a future government that is granted increased powers to plunge its tendrils into Facebook. Or it may be that the structure of Facebook itself changes and decides that it's not enough to simply spread clickbait anymore. They need to make some significant changes to keep growing. And those changes might be at the expense 
of those who have shared everything about themselves with the network, always for good reasons in the moment, but in ways that are perhaps not in the user's interest in the long term. I struggle with the issue of privacy. I go back and forth on it. There's just so much potential there, but also so many pitfalls. I also struggle with the issue of doxing, of free speech, of the evolving assortment of tools to which more and more people have access and how we use them. I am heartened to know that others and other groups, particularly some of the big ones, also struggle with these ideas. Though I worry that the systems within which many of these entities exist have created creatures, these corporations, and to a certain degree the people who work within them, have incentivized them not to consider the full implications of the weirdly warped environment in which these discussions are taking place today. I worry that these things can change, that they have the capacity to evolve, but that their incentives are misaligned with the actual considerations of everybody else, with the actual problems that we're going to need to solve. There is a reason countries like Russia and China are banning VPNs, that technology I mentioned in the intro. VPNs allow us to break through government-imposed barriers and allow us to conceal our actions from censors and from doxers. I'm guessing that other governments would do the same if they thought they could get away with it. The arguments that they could make, that by illegalizing VPNs, they're also pulling the mask from the faces of terrorists and white supremacists and pedophiles. And it's a good argument. It's true in many respects, too. It would make it much easier for law enforcement if people had no way to conceal their activities from them. But like any tool, VPNs are used by the good guys, whatever that term might mean to you, as well as the bad guys. Again, the subjective bad guys. There are arguments to be made that we should disarm everyone and leave the defending of everything online and offline to the government. And if the government did this perfectly and disseminated justice equally and equitably, I think that argument would hold a lot more water. But for the moment, there are not any easy answers or solutions of that kind. There's just a whole lot of questions, and each of us are responsible individually for pulling our own custom-made set of truths from the muddle of data points and perspectives that are currently available. The book that I'd like to recommend today is an old classic, and there's a decent chance that a lot of you have probably read it at some point already. The book is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and I'm pretty sure I first read this book when I was in high school in one of my English classes. But this book, and many of the other books that they force you to read in school as well, are really valuable to reread as an adult sometime later in life once you have a wider perspective and a better understanding, and frankly, when you're not being forced to read it, and when you're not reading for regurgitation, possibly, do a book report or whatever. For me, I come back to this book, I feel like every couple of years. I usually do a rereading cycle when I'll read Fahrenheit 451 and 1984 and Brave New World, one after the next. And if you ever get the chance, I highly suggest it. It's kind of disconcerting because they're all slightly different types of dystopias, really. Brave New World is kind of a satirical utopia. 1984 is kind of a fascist dystopia. And then Fahrenheit 451 is kind of a censorship-ridden dystopia. 
But all three are really fascinating, challenging books that, when approached from the right angle, looking at them as kind of extreme expressions of subtler forces within society, in the case of Fahrenheit 451, subtle influence of censorship in a society, then it's a really valuable way to amplify that concept and to see why we should be so concerned about free speech issues, for instance. And sometimes you almost require a caricature version of a society, an example of what could happen and what that could actually look like, to fully understand why these topics that seem so small and insignificant in some cases, why worry about it? Sometimes you require a cartoonish version of that type of circumstance for it to make sense. And so if you haven't read it before, or if you haven't read it for many years, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Fahrenheit 451, whether it's in paperback version, there's a million of them, a bunch of different versions that you could probably find at your local library, you can grab a Kindle version, you could listen to the audiobook version. And if you have a chance, if you really want a fun intellectual challenge, try to read those back-to-back. Fahrenheit 451, 1984 by George Orwell, and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at Exile Lifestyle, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the web at Colin is my name, though I'm just Colin Wright on Facebook, if you want to say hi on any of those networks. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.